everybody out there in the galaxy, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details of the characters, places, things, concepts, stuff, and... Bounty Hunters. Bounty Hunters, right. From a good. galaxy far, far away. Good, cool. That is the voice of Ross, my co-host, my fellow Bounty Hunter biographer. I'm Mac, one of your other hosts. Well, your other hosts. Oh, we did it backwards. I don't know where we're doing. I'm Mac. He's Ross. We're going to talk to you about Star Wars. What are we talking about today, Ross? Oh, we're going to talk about so many fun things. We're going to talk about, starting with Aura Singh, the uh, Phantom Menace famous favorite bounty hunter. The amazing looking episode one character... The amazing episode look one human prop, the set piece. But hey, Clone Wars gave her a character, so yes, we'll talk about. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk a little bit of her Legends persona too. It's going to be fun. Then we're going to head over and talk about the wasteland that is Nima Outpost. That little hole in the sand. We're going to go mm-hmm. see what's there to see. See where Ray got her start. Her humble origins as a Strandcast offspring to a junk trader, possibly enslaved, to a freedom fighter. We'll talk about it all. Well, we'll talk about where she got her start. We'll we'll talk about the town she was forced to live in. And then finally, we're going to talk about a force power. It's been a little while since we talked about a force power, and we always have fun doing those. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about one of Mac's favorites, Battle Meditation. All right, so cross your legs, get focused. We're going to dive right in after this. So it's 1999. Mm, yes. Uh, I'm sitting at home yes. on the family computer, yes. which is in a public space, Yes. and clicking on it, and on our giant CRT, it's at least 12 inches wide. Whoa. Um, I'm taking a look at Star Wars Hyperspace, Yeah. Um, which my parents wouldn't let me subscribe to. So I'm looking at <laughs> like four weeks ago's Hyperspaces, because during the production of episode one, they on StarWars.com have this initiative to use the internet to show you video clips. The hot new thing. Um, which admittedly, in 1999, is kind of madness. I mean, it's a postage stamp that might be QuickTime player or real time. I, I don't know. I'm not going to reminisce about it. But Ahmed Best <laughs> is there giving you weekly doses of what's happening on the set and the post-production of Star Wars episode one. And it's so exciting. And I remember that there's an episode where they talk about this chalk white skinned lady in this orange jumpsuit yep. that the internet instantly called Babe Fett. Because um, it's like, what's this terribly mysterious, like, bounty hunter lady? And does she have an antenna coming out of her head? But like a metal one? And, and oh, oh, and look, look, she's got these long fingers to... Whoa, no, she's got... She's got long fingers. Like, they got, like, an extra bit 
like or two bits to them. Wow, if they're talking about her here and you know it, it, giving us all these details, she's going to be really important. Oh yeah, no, I mean look how cool her. This, she's got this giant gun, this crazy you know shock of red hair ponytail. Like she looks so cool. And more little did we know it was going to be Babe Fett in the sense of like Boba Fett. Not a whole lot in the movies to go on for this character. <laughs> in fact, even less. Even uh, less. Especially now that Legends has been swept out. Very little. Yeah, fair. Well, we got right, some we're going to talk Wars. about it, though. Don't you worry. Uh, okay, so here today we are talking about Aura Singh. Because Aura Singh is a character that has a, you know, 20-plus year now, 22-year history in Star Wars. Uh, and has had a, a fun run both as a Legends character and now with a little bit over the last, you know, 10, 12 years uh, in canon a little bit too. But with the Bad Batch on the horizon, mm-hmm. maybe more Aura Sing mm-hmm. to come. So why not a good time to wrap up, you know, what we've had so far so that way we're prepared for when we see her in the future. So, Mac, uh, in Legends, Aura Sing is... A very wild and different character in some yes. ways than what we see in canon. So uh, this character, Aura Singh, you know, we first see her in The Phantom Menace in 1999. Very briefly during the pod race, you see her up sort of on a ledge looking down. And, and that's it, it. And her whole thing is she's just terribly mysterious. Because, like, she, like, she, she looks, there's a sound effect yeah. of her, like, scope zooming in a little bit. And that's that's it. That's all that she really does. And admittedly, I think you would see this get worse, say, in the sequel series, like, or sequel trilogy with, like, C-3PO's red arm of, like, in the end, Ursing almost feels like, yeah, it's a cool background character, like, a design to just make the tapestry of Star Wars better. That's exactly what it is, but it But it also feels like kind of like a look over here, like, there's a little bit of, like, look at this cool character. What's going to happen with him? Nothing. They're just to feed hyperspace uh, as we move through the production of episode one and get people excited. And much like half the characters got merch in 1999, they're not important probably enough to deserve some merch. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a classic thing with Star Wars to make uh, first wave figures of characters that have nothing to do with anything. Yeah, but uh, and that's part of the fun. But again, a very enduring image like she's a very absolutely like like a boba fett just her look made people just go who is that girl i want to know more about this weird thing you take the time to put someone in that much hair and makeup Uh, it's kind of true right because especially like i said like she has her fingers because she's a what is it it's i have the note oh gosh you paladuvian yeah paladuvian one um uh and as far as i know like one of like the only one or one of the only ones ever shown I can't in Star Wars. one we've ever seen. Um, but like one of the signature things, they have these, you know, just ultra blaster paste white skin, mm-hmm. uh, kind of darkness around their eyes. They have kind of sunken in eyes. And then the other most defining feature about them is they essentially have two more segments to their fingers. So like when she grabs a blaster, she can wrap her hand like around it twice. <laughs> like, um, and I'm like, what an interesting detail! What an interesting detail, right? Yeah. And I'm like, there's no way you can see that while you watch Episode One. Like, there's no, no way you can pick that much detail. All. Not in any uh, well, way. No. If you know what you're looking for, maybe. But like in general, <laughs> like no, everyone's like, who's the chick with the ponytail with the gun? Oh, guess we're not gonna find out. 
Yeah. Now, from this appearance, you know, in episode one, she yeah. goes off to get all of this other supplemental material in a couple of novels and some comics, stuff like that. Basically, she is a Force-sensitive young child who yep. is brought into the Jedi Order and then falls out of the Jedi Order, becoming a slave for a hut uh, and being trained as an assassin. So, essentially, she is a semi-Force-trained bounty hunter assassin. In the Legends world, which is not far off from where she is in the canon world. Now, besides in The Phantom Menace, that brief moment we see her, Mm -hmm. the other experiences we've had with her have all pretty much been in the Clone Wars, right? Right. Other than one brief mention, which we'll throw in at the end. But (laughs) the Clone Wars is the bulk of her canon content, right? Yes. There's nothing else that I'm forgetting. Well, um... Again, in meaningful ways, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's, she's, she's just sort of in the background of a lot of different, especially legends, like different conversations of, like, again, before Clone Wars, she was the Boba Fett of her time, she's one of the most feared bounty hunters in the galaxy, yada, 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 don't get on her bad side, yeah, yeah, I don't want her chasing you, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Clone Wars kind of recontextualizes as, weirdly enough, a character, um, with an actual personality for the most part. Um, because we see the circles that she runs in and with who is much more has become our most feared bounty hunter in the galaxy at the time, Cad Bane. She ends up throwing her lot in with Cad Bane and I, I guess that's where we see her, right? Is is the Yeah, we well we see her we see her in a couple of different mostly in season two and three. Yeah. Okay. And she's kind of involved in a couple of key things. Yeah, we do see her early on. Um, and she she works with Hondo. She worked with Boss. She worked with Boba. And that's really the most, the, the biggest part of her story is her time with Boba, where she's sort of mm. the surrogate mother for him. You know, they're not, uh, it's more of like a partnership. They're working together, you know, Um She's at looking that out time, for him. but you know she she's manipulating him too through caring about him. She it's not like it's a direct. You know I think there may be some genuine concern there, but mm-hmm. it's more about what can I get from this kid? How can I use him? Because one of the biggest story arcs is she uses him to try and go after Mace Windu because he wants revenge. Yeah, you know on the Jedi mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So you know she's getting what she wants by helping him, mm-hmm. but it's not really to serve his needs. It's to serve hers. Um, you know, she's still an assassin. She's still a bounty hunter in the clone wars. She also is involved, uh, in an attempt to assassinate Padme. Mm. Um, she's mm. kind of the main, the main foil in that her and Ahsoka have a good moment together. Well, just, I mean, just to, just to, um, again, reclock it a little bit. So yeah, she's on Tatooine when, the Punta Eve classic happens. Right. And then basically the next time we see her is, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think chronologically, not viewing order, but chronologically, yeah. it's the it's the freeing of Zero the Hut is where she shows back up, where Cad Bane is coming in and she's doing sniper work from like the building across the way, I taking out this platform so. of... Yeah, I um, believe that would be the first one chronologically. Yeah, because so Cad but Bane... I'm not an expert on that. Well, the thing I like is like Cad Bane walks onto this platform, the guards come up and they're just like, hey, you know, this is not unauthorized, you can't land here. And he's like, like oh, well, I think I'm going to land here. <laughs> and then two of them get taken out and we see all the way across making these amazing sniper shots is Aura Singh. And I remember at the time when that episode premiered, like... 
didn't I think the I think the fans knew that Aura Singh was coming back, but like this was the oh, this is where she's coming back. Oh, that's so cool. Cause See, you lived through it. I wasn't, you know, watching it live at the time. Yeah, because um, it's uh, what's the actress? Uh, uh, Jamie King's the was coming back and actually got to like voice this character and stuff, which was nice to actually. Oh, I didn't know that. That is yeah cool. to actually make that character real. Yeah. And for the most part, in that whole sequence where again Cad Bane's like holding the senators hostage and yeah. and and you know making things happen so that he can get Zero the Hut out of the detention center, which is the whole play. Like she's just one of the cronies, but she obviously comes down as one of the more effective. Like Cad Bane would turn his back on her and trust she wouldn't shoot him in the back. Like she's a little more trusted, a little more professional, a little more higher echelon. So I think when later on she shows up as part of Boba Fett's crew, I think it's just showing that Boba Fett with his name, his cachet as his name and his father's reputation, like he's collected some heavy hitters in his little crew. Like people like like Ursing and Bosk are, in theory, they're slumming it with this kid. But like it works because the kid probably doesn't take as big of a take as he should actually take from the bounties. So I'm sure they're all an even split. I get the feeling Boba is, uh, no Boba Fett's really, really great. But I've just, I think as like a 12 year old boy, there's just a part of me looking at him just going like, yeah, my guess is that these two people, they, they know how to file the taxes as an independent contractor way better than you. All right. Maybe in that first, you know, when they're first working together, but not by the time we see him with Plo Koon. Remember that one? Oh, it's the a hostage vague. crisis. Oh, okay. oh, oh. So yeah, so Ara say yeah, so uh, Ara and Bosk and um, Boba have taken hostages, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this really great standoff moment where Plo Koon and Ahsoka go to try and free the hostages, basically. And you know, uh, Ora Singh sitting there at the table, and she's using something we haven't talked about yet—her really cool piece of head tech, her antenna. So she's got this built-in antenna in her head that allows her to essentially directly communicate with communication devices from her head, her brain. Yeah, she's able to, like, take... If we're getting technical, basically she can take her vocal centers and vocalize in her head what she wants to say with someone, but not actually have to voice it, and it'll go through a comm link. So she can be this really good for what she often is shown as is a sniper. (laughs) It also allows her to help track people down and things too, to you know, to uh, take in what do you track signals? There we go. That's and intercept them. Like, yeah, because again, it's all it's all built in. (laughs) Yeah, it's really really cool. So anyway, so there's this great standoff moment with her and Plo Koon where he basically comes in and is just stalling time. But then Boba Fett comes off, gets behind him, and so basically he's surrounded with them each on one side, and then Ahsoka comes up behind her and is able to cut off her head antenna so she can't communicate to execute the hostages with Bosk. Mm. And just this really awesome moment where there's like, you know, Boba's using hand grenades to help free her, and, uh, you know, she's flipping the table and shooting stuff, darts out of her shoe, and she, you know, just kind of like the Cad Bane moments, how when you see any character who is able to go confidently toe-to-toe with a Jedi, mm-hmm. it gives you some of that, you know, they have a certain weight to them. You know, they're fighting in a different class than, you know, your average uh, security guard or thug, right? These people are uh, professionals, prepared professionals. Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. (laughs) They know their own strengths and weaknesses. You know, anyone who's able to go up to a Jedi, the reason they can do that is because 
they know where they're strong and where they're weak. And yeah. they know how to counter a Jedi's strengths and weaknesses. And so anyone who has the ability to do that through any way other than brute force does it through, you know, mind share, does it through you know, thinking it through and technology and stuff like that. Yeah. So it makes any character who can do that that much more impressive. Yeah, it's like when the Mandalorian stuff talks about, like, how the Mandos dealt with Jedi. It was all about, like, you just need to be sharper, faster, and smarter than them. Yeah. And that's not hard because they rely on their magic tricks. And if you can work around those magic tricks, then... Or, or in the case of people like Cad Bane, use technology to make you have the same magic tricks. <laughs> um, yeah. It's... it's it's always interesting seeing the kind of people that have the stones to go up against a Jedi when they're not, when they're normal, when they're just a person. It is. It really, really is. And I'm glad that in, you know, our current canonical iteration of ours saying she isn't a, you know, dropout Jedi, a former force sensitive person. I think it makes her more interesting just to be your, you know, your typical run of the mill bounty hunter. And it's interesting to give Mm -hmm. Boba Fett a mother figure, you know, someone who is a clone of a man who's also the father of millions of other clones throughout the galaxy who Mm -hmm. never has a mother figure other than, uh, you know, the cloners on Kamino themselves, uh, you know, he he's never had that kind of influence. So to have sort of this like lawful evil father in Django Fett and this like chaotic evil uh, mother Mom. figure, you know, it, it's an interesting way to make a guy who turns out canonically, you know, in The Mandalorian and stuff to be this brutal but honest person. Yeah. Oh, man. Didn't even think that's kind of an interesting idea of like. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's all grasping at straws here because we have no, no, no. so little about all these characters. It's just we, connecting some dots. We but. say that, but who knows what the book of Boba Fett's going to be? Right. If nothing else, he's going to be and the Bad Batch. Both characters could easily be in that. Oh gosh, because Fennec yeah. Shan's in it. That's correct. We know Ora Singh's in it, so no Ora Singh. Well, I'm just like, yeah, just the idea that in the next. A year from now, we might have a lot more context to Boba Fett as a character and his psychology because we'll have a lot yeah, more potentially stuff. Yeah. Well, I think by the time we get the if, if the book of Boba Fett doesn't reveal more about his character, they've screwed up horribly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't. I, I don't mean, mean. I don't. I don't even mean his backstory. I mean just more of how he conducts himself and who oh, he is sure, as a person. Sure. Sure. And like sure. you said, that's going to be influenced when you look at it. You're going to see. Aura Singh's sort of influence on him, like you said, that little more chaotic, that little more, you know, the universe is an incredibly harsh place and you just got to kick it harder than it kicks you <laughs> um, kind of mentality. Yes, absolutely. And Aura Singh is getting a Black Series figure here soon, just announced in this newest wave. Ooh. So that's exciting and hopefully means more for her well, character to come. Well, an exciting thing was originally um, it was reported by... Uh, uh, Kyle Newman, who uh, is the director of Fanboys, the film that seems a lot further in the rearview mirror than it used to. Mm, yeah. Um, he's 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 the husband of Jamie King, who plays Aura Singh. And originally really? he revealed on uh, a podcast the fact that like Aura Singh was meant to die in one of the episodes of Clone Wars that never got made. Like the 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 truly lost episodes when they scrapped everything, put together the few things for season six and then wrote mm. season seven somewhere in there. There was supposed to be the death of Aura Singh, which is arguably what is being referenced in our last note about her. Uh, obviously that's not canon anymore because she's in the bad batch. <laughs> so uh, 
we uh, we we know a little bit about Orison because we know she has a, a a at least presumed end. I think so. I you know I think it will. I I think that you know semi prediction, semi past idea, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know maybe we will see her end in the Bad Batch. It's possible, uh, and that would mean we'll see another character. Yeah. And that would be mind blowing. It would be well, yeah, yeah. Because in solo, uh, when we're in the in the bar with like the uh, you know the gambling game and the droid fighting, uh, well, a reference comes up about Aura Singh, which I think all of us were like, "Whoa!" Because like apparently Tobias Beckett is the one who, well, he doesn't deny he's the one who offed her. He doesn't. It's a boast that could easily be false. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I don't the way, think so. The way he says it. I don't think Tobias it, Beckett is one to make false well, claims. I, but just, I, here's the thing. is like, It's like, well, the shot didn't kill her. The fall did, right? Isn't yeah. that what the line is? He, he said, I pushed her. The fall killed her. I pushed her. The fall killed her. Right. So there's what I'm saying by a boast is like, I could see her like trip and fall and die. And when someone asks you, did you push her? Yep. <laughs> no, that's a Han Solo move. That's not a Beckett move. I hate to break it to you. Tobias Beckett is where Han Solo gets some of this from. And I think Tobias Beckett You're... is an incredibly more competent human being than yeah, Han Solo. Is there ever... All right, we're not going to... We did a Tobias Beckett topic a long time ago, like episode four or five. Go listen to it if you want to hear us uh, oh, that's gush true. about that's Woody true. Harrelson because we true. both love Woody Harrelson. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think we ever talked about that specifically. I, now you only ever see Beckett be competent, I think. Well, no, they do fail getting the coaxium. Yeah, the, but the that's because heist. of Han. But he, then again, they're successful. It's also not his first screw up because Infus Nest has been a, a thorn in his side for a while. That's yeah, why he's upside right. down with Dryden. You're right. You're right. All right. I, again, I think the thing is Tobias Beckett's a much more competent person. Like, let's put it this way. But Han is also competent later in life too. Well, yeah, this is not the topic. We're, the point. The getting... point of the matter is, I'm just saying. I don't think that that guarantees. Aura Singh's death at the hand of Tobias, but I also feel uh, okay. that Tobias is there when she does die, no matter what happens. I mean, I hope one day we get to see it, and if I could see an animated Woody Harrelson, I would be so happy. <laughs> oh, I see so many. I mean, think of all the good Woody Harrelsons well, out there. Have you, know you ever what? seen an animated Woody Harrelson? I don't know. I'll have to go look I mean, at his IMDb. That's why we're recording this before the Bad Batch, because this topic's about to change totally, because I think we're going to dive into... That underworld scene where Shenik Fan and Aura Singh are maybe you always, dealing re- with... you always reverse it. What Shenik Fan? It's Fennec Shenic... Shan. It's F is the first Fennec Shan. Fennec, Fennel. Remember it's when Fennel, they had names Fennec. like Luke? Uh, okay, not old to be man. A, well, okay, old man. I, no, that's this is not. The I time mean, that's to, what that uh, is. That's uh, a dad thing. No, no, it's that's it, like no, no, no. If anything, it, it's jingoistic. Uh, me being an, uh, a fuddy duddy American who liked names like Bigs, Darklighter, and ones that are like words instead of just <laughs> like what I mean. I it, think is a well. Is my a last word. thing is like Aura Singh is a great example of where where Star Wars has gone as far as the names go. Where because this is an international company with international marketing, a lot of those names get tested to see if they work in many, many, many territories. So we have gone closer and closer to less real names. So like a Tobias Beckett makes me so happy because I'm like, that sounds like a name of someone who speaks English. Not that there's anything wrong with not speaking English or anything, but you know, like I just, the styles of the name of the differences in the names. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. They're much less, 
words I've heard before and totally new words that are fantasy words. So yes. that's why I'm Fennec Shan. <laughs> had you heard Biggs before? Is that, is that a name you had heard before? You heard No, but there? the words that follow that are words I'm familiar. Dark, lighter. Like, sure. sure is that a name? No, but sure. I have no problem sure. internalizing so that. So if it was like know- Fennec Sandstone, it would be better. For me, yes. Okay, that, that's fair. That's what I'm asking. And to be honest, yeah. I would love to have more Skywalkers, Dark Lighters. Like, yeah. I, I would love to have some more uh, solo, yeah. more like Fennec- words that are sort of implying uh, things about their character or implying things about a yeah. world where people have like almost deed names, right? Like where yeah. their their name is, their family names comes from something their family did, not where they're from or other stuff like that. That's asking yeah, too much. But the those aren't but like what, but, all right. Because because like Aura, wait 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> But like Aura Singh, like her family obviously comes from a line of singers. It makes sense. Oh my gosh! All right, let's uh, let's move on to our next topic. That is even more barren and desolate than this one. in the middle of pretty much nowhere (laughs) beyond the ship graveyard of the battle lies a little hole in the wall (laughs) hole in the floor (laughs) it doesn't even have much walls yeah there's fairly short there's not a lot of high rises more just like canopies well you know what it's got a nice little religious gate there that little that little like shinto gate looking thing that's that's what it's got i do like that that part of it Nema Outpost, uh, the only major, major, I use major in air quotes, the only livable settlement on Jakku in a meaningful way. There's yeah. a couple of other salvage depot kind of like landing spots, but Nema's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, they don't really, there's nothing else that really talks about other towns on Jakku, is there? Not really. Not that I can think of anyway. Well, we shockingly don't spend a lot of time on Jakku. No, we certainly don't, do we? Um, you know, we get to spend a little bit more time there in some of the other supplemental material. Um, you know, we get to spend a little bit of time there in the Journey to the Force Awakens book. Uh, in the what? In the beginning? The beginning? What's well, it called? Just the remember- one that has the Rayfin and Poe stories. Uh, we get to spend a little time there. Uh, uh, before the, I think it's before the awakening or something. Before like the awakening, thank you. Yes. Yeah, and, and yes. we we get to know a little bit about the backstory, and and in the ramp up, the the media ramp up to Force Awakens, yeah. we got a whole bunch of fun little little 
pieces and parts about uh, the town itself. So like yes. one thing we know is we sort of know one of the reasons it's such a small little dinky town and like the only thing on Jakku is Jakku is nothing. It was just a dumb desert world until the final battle of the Galactic Civil War occurs yes. there and tons of ships are being shot down and crashing into the planet's surface and enterprising people such as Nima the Hutt decides to there's a lot of scrap just sitting there. I should have minions go and mine that for my profits and basically pays to have this little outpost set up and um, a group of some of the adventurous people working for Nima. Some people are people that just ended up here um, are, are going through and systematically scrapping, breaking down all these star destroyers and other stuff yeah. that's left on the planet and eking out some small amount of living. Yeah, this is town square. <laughs> this is the center of it all. This is where business happens and dreams get made uh, on Jakku. This is, you know, the bulk of it. So the the main things we get to see here in The Force Awakens, right, we see that there is basically a station where people bring in their wares and clean them, you know, tidy them up. Although it's a station that's under armed guards, so, you know, they can't lollygag there. It's it's not a... It's not an you just not you can't lounge, you know. You're there, you're working, you gotta get the that, elbow grease into it. That shade is not free. That shade is not free. That's a very fair point, right? So we see that there and um we see that there's people of all different species and origins and ages are here, you know. There's not a ton of people, but the people we see, there's a ton of variety. Right. And what we're mostly finding out is this economy is these are fairly downtrodden people, though. I don't think it's really implied any of them are slaves. I think they're just very. I think destitute. it's more they're a slave to the system. So, like, yeah, they're yeah. not actually it, in prison, but what else poverty. could they do? Because if they don't provide parts for rations, then they die. They have no way to get off planet. Well, they can't earn, you know, and th that's they're stuck. And that's my other thing is I get the feeling that a lot of these people, like you said, at one point said, yeah, I'll be a colonist at this new opportunity. Or I ended up here because I was on a, a hop with one of the traders that come in and out of here taking all these parts back to the marketplace and stuff like I just ended up here. And then by, you know, you've you've economically screwed yourself into being stuck here. Um, so I, I'm just trying to say, like, I don't think it's so. It's more depressing <laughs> than yeah. if it, if you were forced labor here. Yeah. Forced labor would seem somehow like less because yeah. like, well, at least someone's forcing you to be here. It's like, no, you probably through misfortune got yourself yeah. stuck here. And you know what's interesting about it that as you're you're talking, this is kind of just coming into my mind is I think of like when you think about forced labor in the Star Wars universe, right? Like we've seen true slavery mm -hmm. in the Clone Wars and in Solo and all that. But like when I think of like um like think of like the first Darth Bane book, right? Like his yeah. story is he starts off in what is not really a prison camp, but it's like you you have to work to pay off debt that you already have. Like he inherits debt from his father. He it's like grows a debtor's this, colony. Yeah, he grows up in this terrible environment, you know, this rough environment, this brutal right. environment. And he turns out to be, you know, this terrible, giant, most powerful Sith Lord of all time type of deal, right? Yeah. You have this other character now, right? You have Rey, who's growing up in this incredibly harsh environment. That's not exactly the same thing, but it's much closer to a harsh 
prison life than say like Luke growing up on Tatooine is, right? Yeah, Luke Luke's part of a middle class family and yeah. just wants to go seek adventure. Yeah. He's not really in a bad place. Yeah. And also It's sucky, li- it's farm town. Again, little did we know when he said if there's a bright center of the galaxy, you're on the planet furthest from, that even he in episode eight will agree agree. No one's from nowhere. I'm from Jakku. Okay, that's pretty much nowhere. Even <laughs> I, Tatooine resident, yeah. think that that's a backwater. Yeah. So that is an interesting spin of it, I think, and just something worth thinking about is, you know, that a person coming from such a rough, harsh environment, a person who's abandoned, uh, to still be a positive person in general from the get-go, to remain positive. Right. Um, I mean, it's... I think the other thing... It's interesting is all. I think the other thing that's sort of implied with Nima Outpost is, say, 28, 27 years ago when this outpost was established, there's probably a bit of a gold rush, right? Getting all the best parts, ripping these things apart because, you know, like the galactic empire is not going to come clean up their own mess. The Republic's got enough things to worry about rather than going to this faraway planet to recover some military assets. So you figure like the huts and some of the criminals like take advantage of this. They are stripping it for all the best stuff. And by the time we meet Ray, we're down to like portions. Everything seems to be really slow. There doesn't seem to be a lot. She's turning in a lot of gear and she's mad about already. It's it's like deflated, like as far as how much this stuff should be worth. Yeah, values um, are down. And so it really feels that like this this outpost is on its last legs anyway, because there's just all the easy to get high value scraps pretty much been already collected. And so now it's just trying to find the odds and ends and, and diminishing returns further and further. And we've seen something I think is also interesting about Nima Outpost's character is we are introduced to Ray, her hopping around a star destroyer and just how hard it is to get to some of this scrap that she can collect. And I think it's also showing like, Oh, that's why this isn't run by droids. Like the work they're doing takes a lot of ingenuity, cleverness, and that's why there's a whole bunch of people here because the people who are left who can find worthwhile stuff out there in the graveyard have to be pretty clever and uh, adventurous to get to some of the places where the good bits are still there. Yeah, you know, the thing that's interesting about Star Wars is even though it's incredibly advanced in some ways, you know, space travel and um, android technology and stuff like that, everything still feels reasonable. Like, there isn't some droid that can go just cut its way through the hull of a Star Destroyer, go to the exact right spot, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, there's no autonomous drone in Star Wars that can just do anything. Right. You know, they all serve a specific purpose. So, yeah, that's just a really interesting world-building thing is this would have to be humans just because, A, it's such a harsh environment that droids can't operate in, but also it's such a specific specialized task that you have to have a a knowledge base for that can't be programmed. All right. And let's say, let's talk about some of the characters we do know. So we know about Ray, obviously Uh, one of the probably most prominent characters we (laughs) see as filmed is going to be Unker Plot. Yes, Unker Plot. And Unker Plot is, for lack of a better term, he's sort of the paymaster of the outpost. Like, he's the one who appraises yeah. the incoming scrap, collects yeah. it for shipment off-world for yeah. sale, and he's the one who decides these portions, these essentially um, 
rations. Yeah. Um, he's the one who dotes them out and he does it from this secure, like locked up vault box where, you know, he's kind of the big man in town just simply because, well, you assume those armed guards work for him or at least they're on the same, they have the same employer. Right. Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, Ankar Plutt is not a pleasant person. No, odious. Um, he also possibly bought Ray from her parents. We know that he's involved he in the custody her. of we her. You know, Ray or Ben says, you know, they sold you. I don't. Does Ray ever actually confirm there was an exchange of money? Well, the I thing don't that think so. so Okay, let okay, elephant in the room on that. Let's just put it this way. In Force Awakens, we see Unker plot with his arm his hand around her arm. Like yeah. we see that he is he has her when she's a little girl in yeah. the outpost. And obviously he's the one that sets her to this is your job for now. Yes. Um in episode eight, we have it your parents were drunk and they sold you for drinking money, right? Yes. And we are left with the idea of like her parents are deadbeats. Yes. And then it's Palpatine's cloned son and his wife who seem to love their daughter and left her on the outpost to hide her from right. her grandfather. Right. So trying to put those all together, it's really hard to think of what happened. My suspicion is simply this, that they gave her to Unkar Plutt so that she would stay on this planet and have a, like, a, a living, right, a way to live. It was probably, they would have rather put her somewhere else, but this is the planet that they're like, it's the the heat on us. The person chasing us is too close. We have to, we can't wait for the next nice planet. We have to settle for, she's going to live here. And I'm going to guess that perhaps they acted drunk and paid Unker Plot. That is their cover story for how they left her. Or Unker Plot also knows that that's not the reason, but that's the story he told everyone to the point that anyone who would investigate it, that's what they would have found out. Sure. It's. There are three distinct versions of that story. All three of them don't line up quite right. And yeah. so it's that's tough why I to think say. there was not an exchange of goods. If I had to fall on one side of the, you know, the coin or the, the other, I think there was no exchange of money. I think the only way I could see it is again, if that's their cover story, sure. right? They're like, we got to drop off our daughter. Well, well they're not just going to let us like have the kid. Like we'll, we'll say we're selling her. Sure. So all of this, all of this conversation we just had to ask the question, right? So is Ankar plot a slaver? Right, 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 right. It, it basically, the biggest thing is, is Ray indebted to Unker Plot in a property? Sl- I, I see. I don't think she's property. I'm 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 with you in the sense of I, that doesn't seem right to me. Right. Um, and if it if she was, I feel she's paid off enough of her debt that she has autonomy because she has her own like house and that broken down ATAT yes. and stuff. Like it seems like Unker Plot's like the economic leash that she has to come back for portions seems perfectly fine for him in their relationship. He doesn't seem to have any particular more interest yeah. in her than and any of the other people. Have any, yeah, they don't have any other relationship well, that we you, ever see in any other way, right? L- well, let's add one little bit to this. It's a little, again, where does this fall in canon? Like, when you read the novelization of The Force Awakens and some of that, there is a little more back and forth 
to their exchanges mm-hmm. for the portions where like Unkerplot does have a particular shine to her. And yeah. I don't know if it's just like his particular wave of malice likes to treat her a little bit more sure intently intensely. He's not a great guy. He, no, he's not. He's, a, he's not. not a nice guy. Uh, played by Simon Pegg. Um, but Which yeah, is fun. He, yeah, he's just not a nice uh, a nice guy. But, uh, but we don't like him very much. On but there is one honorable man in town, isn't there? Mac, <laughs> you know, anyone who's listened to some of we did we did an episode on this as well at some point. Yeah, we did. Anyone who listens knows how much I adore Constable Zuvio. Constable Zuvio. And he also is not only a resident of Jakku and Nima Outpost, but he is the law. He is the fury. He is the big man on campus. Yes. He is Constable Zuvio. Um who is a character that, if you're not familiar, we'll just give real quick here, uh, was heavily marketed when The Force Awakens was coming out in press material, in magazine releases. He had an action figure early on in both, both the three and three quarter and the six inch size. <laughs> yeah. Wave one of three and three quarter, wave two of Black Series, if I remember correctly. Yep. So he was heavily marketed, and he is not in the movie, period. No, no. No, didn't we figure out that like when one wide shot when the Falcon's leaving, if you look down in the corner and you see the one of the four frames where his hat can be seen. Yeah, you can you can catch a quick glimpse. But let's just put it this way. There's more Sarko Plank at Nemao Post than there is Constable Zuvio. If you don't know who Sarko Plank is, he also had a three and three quarter action figure in the early waves there, and he is uh the main antagonist in one of the other uh short uh young reader Luke Skywalker books. Mm-hmm. So check him out. He's a very cool, uh very cool design for a character, I think. Really cool action figure too. But Sarko Plank is in there for a moment, another Nemo Post guy. Yeah. But no, Zuvio's who we're talking about. And unfortunately, yeah, we never get to see him in the movie. He became uh, a joke to some people. He became uh, a, a topic of um, well, his... hate and anger for others. And to some of us, he became an idol, an icon. <laughs> I think the biggest thing about it is he, he became semi-infamous fam- fam- for the fact that he was like the peg warmer. Like, you couldn't find any Force Awakens toys, but of course Zuvia was on the peg. Like You don't see those anywhere anymore, though. I well, that's bet be- you they sell for at least. $10 that's because of how day. much his reputation has been healed over time. Um, Zuvio is um, a. Re- I think the biggest thing about it is Zuvio's in that category of what a cool looking character design that doesn't go like. Yeah, it's kind of like our previous topic with Aura Singh, like doesn't really amount to having an actual character. Yeah. Now that's not hundred percent true because in that riot, you know. Uh, the before the awakening is, is no it's wait. in uh aliens volume one tales aliens from across one. the galaxy aliens volume one never been a volume two very upset about it we talked about this before in fact i think we gave away a copy at one point of this book oh okay uh but it's a great collection of short stories really highly recommended i think you can still buy it cheaply uh you know from your local bookseller on amazon or whatever uh but there's a great story in there called high noon on jakku that focuses on Constable Zuvio tracking down a rogue um, thing. I won't say any more because I don't want to spoil. Yeah, it. let's not go over the whole story. But yeah. I think what it, I think what it implies is maybe some of the speculation we were telling about is like our ironic love of Zuvio and that story <laughs> in particular. I think it yeah. kind of leads to the idea of like this town is not one hundred percent corrupt. There's at least one 
reasonable, honorable person here yeah. because uh, Zuvio is a lawman. He really does want justice and stuff like that, which again, it's frontier justice. It's a little, it's a little rough around the edges. Yeah, but like that's why I, I, I think it's there aren't any slaves on this planet. The yeah. slavery is is indentured servitude via contract, not actual yeah. ownership of people. I'd love to know how Zuvio got to the outpost, got to Jakku. Was oh, he born yeah. there? Oh, I don't know. What he's like is the he only, an angel? Just watch. He's the native of Jakku. The one. The, oh, the one that's left. <laughs> the only one that's left. Oh, God. Um, But, uh, I, I mean, the, the thing about Nima Outpost is, and the other thing... <laughs> well, no, no. What else is there to say? No, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no. The last thing I just want to... Uh, go the, for it. The last things I want to say about Nima yeah. Outpost is... It's kind of an imp- incredibly important thing to the sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 touch on it in every single movie from the thing we just said about her parents in that moment, yeah. right? Um, it's the end of the Galactic Civil War, the final battle. The 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 Galactic Concordian is signed as a result of this battle going sideways. It created that battle created a whole economy. Yes. But no, no, I'm just saying, did. Jakku no, did. is a shockingly important planet, right? Oh, yeah. Spot on. And this little backwater with, you know, and look how many ships like the Quad Hopper, the Millennium Falcon, all these ships that are lined up in the landing field around Neem Outpost. Like, it's got enough traffic that it's something that should come back up in Star Wars. We should check back in this. And for me, one thing I'd love to see Neem Outpost in, and what I want to get to is... If we get to Rangers of the New Republic and stuff like that, I would love an episode to take place at Neem Outpost when, like I said, I imply that, like, I think it was more of a boom town. I think there was the gold rush era of this town where it was much more a hut run little outpost with probably more interesting stuff. I think that would be an awesome thing to see. So I I, I hope we see more of it because, uh, just being honest... Jakku always kind of bugged me because I'm like, why isn't this just Tatooine? <laughs> I've always been in that camp. And as time's gone on, I've accepted in my heart that Jakku is a separate planet. But what would be great is to keep reselling the idea that it is. Like, um, like on a long enough timeline, wouldn't it be cool to see like Lost Stars as like an animated show or something like that? And like, just, just build out Jakku more. I would love it so much. So. I would Lost Stars is an animated show, like a single twenty episode season or whatever. Uh-huh. You know that's a dream. Oh yeah. But I am also of the 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 uh, huge advocate of animate, you know, Star Wars novels. Turn them into animated oh. films on Disney Plus. So, so I mean, the most obvious one is the Dark Disciple, the one that started out as Clone Wars scripts and then became a novel. Right. Start there. That but that would make a beautiful ninety minute movie. On Disney Plus and animation. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, man. If and we that's could where do we Lost Stars, that would be mind-blowing. And I should just mention, Lost Stars is a, for lack of a better term, it's a... It's the Battle of Jakku from two characters' perspectives. Like, yeah. that's the big thing. Is That's why it's relevant to our topic. Yes. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Neem Outpost. Hope we'll see more of it. I, I mean, yeah. I love your idea of seeing it as a little bit more of an established thing. I think that's an awesome idea. All right. Well, maybe we'll see it in the future. But... Now we need to concentrate, meditate, if you will, and go on to another topic. Every soldier knows that war is more than arms and armor. Every warrior carries an image of impending victory in his heart. Don't move now. 
One quick stroke of my knife, and all your worries will be ended. When the image shatters to be replaced by defeat, he is beaten. Lost. The battle is... But sometimes, a warrior receives assistance from an unexpected source, an inrush of light blasting away his fear and despair. Now, Orankira, releasing new inner strength, you die. No! What? You still resist? Yes. A war is much more than arms and armor. Yes! Uh, to the last! Uh. Half of every conflict is the will to win. We are Jedi. We must recognize that the will to win and the power of war are given sometimes by the dark side. No! Ah. And sometimes, as dawn throws back the night, victory is given by the light. Never, Rulik, should you underestimate the power of the Force to inspire others. So it was you, Master Arca. You used the Force to influence the battle. Yes. I felt it. I, Orankira, felt a knife at my throat. I could not move. And then, suddenly, strength flowed through me. I... I thought it was my own courage. It was, Orankira. I merely used the Force to awaken what was already in you. Master Arca, I watched the battle. One minute, the Beast Riders were defeated. The next minute, they were unstoppable. I used the Jedi technique of battle meditation, influencing the battle's outcome. By visualizing the desired results of a battle, a Jedi influences the field of Force that surrounds all events. You rely too much on your strong arms and brave spirit. Do not forget the Force. So, out of all the Force powers we've seen, from lifting rocks, pulling lightsabers out of snow... Choking people to death, uh, electrocuting people partially to death. Um, let's see what else. Mind control. Boy, these these people are kind of manipulative, aren't they? Absorbing blaster bolts, stopping them in the middle of the oh air. Gosh, yes. Uh, so we've seen a lot. We've seen the force teleport people across the galaxy. We have seen it do all kinds of things. But there is one thing that we've seen now. Mm-hmm. In Star Wars. Well, again, official, official. for the first yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> and that is battle meditation. It's been a while since we've talked about a force power. So why not wrap up this week's episode with the discussion on battle meditation, something that has a relatively rich history in Legends, mm -hmm. but now has been reintroduced to the new expanding universe canonically in Star Wars. And that is in the High Republic, Avar Chris's battle meditation 
Um, right. And we're going to talk about a little bit of the Legends history of it and then talk about what we've gotten uh, more recently. So, Mac, let's start with uh, Battle Meditation as you know it, because this is something I know yeah. you have a fair amount of knowledge on. So where did you first come across it? Well, I mentioned before that a lot of my fandom, especially in EU legend content, was rooted in the Tales of the Jedi era, the 4,000 years ago. And Kevin J. Anderson, when he wrote all that stuff, one of the things that he invented for the Tales of the Jedi series was he wanted a way to kind of present the Jedi as, well, soldiers, because we didn't really know they were going to be full monks until the prequels. Um, so he wrote them as errant knights going off on missions for the Republic and all this stuff. Sure, he was sure. Like, I have this, the consular, right? I have the master of these young uh, Jedi, and I want him to have a powerful, potent way to help the battle, but he just doesn't seem like the fighter who's going to go in there with the sword. He, how, how do you make a, a passive way of showing power? And he wrote that Master Arca has the power of battle meditation. And battle meditation is basically, literally, they sit down, cross their legs, and they concentrate and really monitor and feel the force around them. And then what they do is they don't really augment it. They just sort of uncork the river of the living force flowing through the battle and cause it to turn to their side. And the idea is, and he describes it um, as how every soldier knows that the real war the real war you have to win in a battle is inside yourself to overcome your fears, to overcome your limitations, your hesitations and seize the victory that you need. Morale is the real thing that wins wars. And the thing that breaks an army is those hesitations and fears. So if you can cause your side to feel victory is in their grasp at all times, to feel that they are just inches away from winning the war and make your enemies believe that maybe this is hopeless, maybe we can't win, these conflicts can be drawn down to a much faster conclusion with a lot less less death if we can make the battle shorter by just winning the hearts and minds, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so that's what he demonstrates, and another character in Tales of the Jedi, um, Nomi Sunrider, has this power as well, and it's described as a very rare power because it requires a very special person's understanding of the force to see that big of a picture to take it an entire battlefield and see the personal stories of everyone fighting it and somehow touch them through the force is an incredibly potent power and kevin j anderson used that later uh i'm not familiar with the post endor stuff but i know that um one of the characters, uh, I'm not going to remember the name, but one of the characters ends up with that as well as an echo of all this stuff. Mm. And then it's sort of like got into the popular conscious, I think, of Star Wars with that is Bastila Shan, the Jedi you're rescuing at the beginning of the Knights of the Republic game. That's why she's of such strategic importance to the yes. Republic. Yeah, the whole idea of battle meditation and Bastila having it is this power is incredibly rare. It's not that any Jedi can do this. Not only do they have to be an incredibly powerful and skilled Jedi, but they have to be also incredibly dedicated mm -hmm. to the Force and to understanding it and to feeling it in a way, um, you know, that other Jedi just simply have not mastered the ability to. Right. And so with Bastila, you know, she is controlling this 
this this fleet, this battle against one of the most fierce enemies the Jedi's have ever fought, you know, in this Sith army uh, with Malak and all that. Yeah. So, you know, this character who is not only so important for her physical ability, you know, her, her sort of, you can call them, I think, narrow them down to kind of telekinetic powers in yeah. one way or another, right? You know, it's not only that it's this incredibly powerful battle thing, but it's also just so incredibly rare, Right. right. So it's it's doing more than just I mean, it, it can be used in ways well, more than just winning a war. So like we've seen other characters like before we talk about Bastila, we've seen other characters like Sith characters who yes. use it more in like a hive mind way. Right. Like they have their own variations on it where they can literally control the minds of soldiers and they can take and make regular soldiers almost force sensitive, you know, increasing their reflexes, sort of like super soldierizing them, stuff like yeah, that. In the, in the legacy books, they call it Sith battle coordination. And it's the idea of this is the dark mirror of that. Whereas battle meditation is raising the banner and, and piping the flutes and hitting the drums yeah. of filling you with the, 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 the thrill of victory. And that come on lads, yeah. we can all work together and win this war. Yeah. The Sith, is, the Sith is more of just like, like you said, linking them all together and making them fight as yeah. one force with yeah. the individuality kind of suppressed and away. I, and I just love when we see dark and light side versions of the same power. You mm -hmm. know, that's what's happening here. We see it like, you know, the, the mind trick versus Kylo's mind reading. Right. Right. Like, you know, we see the dark and the light versions of these two manipulations of the force. And, you know, I'm sure we'll see other versions of that in the future. But it's just I always find that interesting when you get to see a dark and a light side version of something. And so with Bastila, you know, you're this character. You're, you're seeking her out mm -hmm. because of this power she has. But you've never actually seen it. You know, right. you're just hearing about the legend of this Jedi who can do this rare thing. And I think that speaks to the power as well. And then once you get her, you realize that it gives you a plus three on every attack as <laughs> long as she has that power activated. And you go, I don't I don't think that's really showing the grandeur of what it is. Isn't it so funny how when you like hear about battle meditation or read about it or like yeah. uh, if you like watch like a YouTube video about it, it's like, yeah, it gives them plus 10 stats to like it sounds like a role playing game. Thing. I, I think the biggest thing about it is I think because battle meditation and Sith battle coordination are also in like source books for the old RPG and the new RPGs yeah. and stuff. I'm like. I don't think it's an RPG. I don't think it's a game mechanic because the way it's always been shown, uh, and we're going to talk about the canon existence of it as well here in a second. Like, it has always been shown as what I would consider. There's a thing in in gaming parlance. Like, you're playing a tabletop gaming gaming thing. Like, you pick up this magic artifact in D and D. Oh, well, what kind of artifact is it? Oh, this is a special class. Oh, what level is? It has no level. Its level is plot device, which means that it doesn't fit into your little game mechanics. It does whatever the story requires it to do. <laughs> right? And I feel like battle meditation, like, there's no way to gamify it. It is a person sits down, crosses their legs, think about the battle really hard, and then suddenly your side wins, like, a battle. Like, that's not, there's no way, it's not a plus 10. That's like... That's the reason that you build an entire story around Bastila Sean because it's that amazing of a power. Right, right, right. That's what it feels like anyway. That's I agree. Hyped, right. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about what we've seen in the High Republic with Avar Chris, 
who is, uh, I'd say, the main character of Light of the Jedi, the first major novel in the High Republic. The brightest star, if you will yeah. say, in there. So before we go any farther, just want to say spoilers for you True. know that book and her story a little bit. Uh, so just a heads up. So she is sort of our main, not our main Jedi character that we spend the most time with, but from a power perspective, you know, we're meant to believe she's sort of this sort of, not all powerful being, but like the highest on the food chain when it comes to respect and ability. I bought it digitally, so I don't remember it. She's on the cover, isn't she? She is also on the cover. There you go. That's how you know she's important. Yeah. So this this Jedi character, you know, we see her at the beginning of the story when she is acting on the great disaster, right? And I'm trying to say without spoiling stuff. Uh, And basically these Jedi all come out of hyperspace together in their little different crafts and ships and are trying to essentially use Avar Chris's connection of battle meditation, as mm-hmm. we're calling it, to save people. So not to win a fight or a battle, right? But to literally try and coordinate a rescue mission. So right. it's a little bit of a different thing, although it is used in battle, can be used in battle, but we're seeing it here in a different way, not to win a fight, but to coordinate a rescue. And, and I think that's the first well, important thing to talk about here. And it's still attached to that principle and why most people identify it as battle meditation, you know, who reading those passages is because it's still about the idea of there's a great challenge in front of us. We have the morale to overcome this right, challenge and do great right, things. Right, right, like, right. You know, it's still about the idea of it's not just the physical coordination of these people it's the will it's collecting these people and taking all the positive optimistic ways that we can tackle this problem and channeling that forward and suppressing the doubts and the fears about what we're trying to accomplish yes and so to talk about this we have to talk about the way that chris hears the force or sees interprets the force and this is one of the coolest things about the light of the jedi novel is that it you know takes a few of these jedi and it shows you how each of them kind of in their mind's eye internalizes and interprets the force and for avar chris it's as a song, it's as music. It's mm-hmm. basically, you know, different sounds that she could hear and interpret. And through her sort of connection with the universe, mm-hmm. she is able to send out different communications. So like Max says, you know, apply a calming effect, apply a connected effect. So people aren't necessarily communicating like over a calm, like speaking sentences, but they can feel the emotions or the intentions of everyone else around them. So they can feel that, okay, if this group is going to work on this problem, they can feel that it's taken care of, right? Or they can feel if another group of uh, rescue workers are in trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's basically this interconnected all inside of the head Jedi network that can really just open them up to their feelings through the force. So like when a Jedi is sensing one person's emotions through the force, it's doing that on a much larger scale. And it's also able to send basic commands or even maybe the idea of a single word out among the network. People to see what Avar Chris can see in the whole Exactly. And it's all done through this one linchpin Jedi who is just on the command ship the entire time. And it even talks a little bit of how when she levitates, it makes her that much more in tune with the force because she isn't touching any man-made surface. Right. So she's just this uh, 
character using this power for a Jedi thing, saving something instead of hurting someone. Yeah, and, and the, that's and the, a huge difference between the way we've seen it in Legends. Yeah, and the allusion to her way of experience is it's kind of like a conductor, right? You can hear the whole sound of your orchestra and you know where to flick the baton or use a hand gesture to like call up that, you know, hey, the, the strings are a little soft. I need those a little bit stronger. Yeah. Like how to harmonize all of this sound. It's all funneling like to them, Avar Chris, to kind of collect that. And I think, like I said, when you think about an orchestra or something of all these people doing all these different things with these totally unique instruments, and there's still this one person that has the whole picture in their head and is pushing, prodding, pulling, poking to just make their whole sound collectively amazing. Yes, 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 yes. Um, it's a it's really well described in a relatively short amount of pages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's it's really fun to have this ability now in kind of our new canon, right? In the yeah. new era, of, in the new expanded universe. I mean, the new EU is seven years old now, so it's not like it's this brand new little baby thing anymore. Well, I think it's. Uh, I it, think it always feels new anytime something yeah. that echoes the legends yeah. comes back into canon, because it just kind of feels like a. Oh yeah, it's becoming the Star Wars I recognize. Yeah. There's this sort of just like, as more things come in, the the, I guess it's connecting these new experiences to a much longer legacy that makes everything feel more prominent. Yeah, and um. That cuts both ways because, like, not everything, most things from Legends do not need to come back into canon. Um, but, like, it is nice to see building on the beautiful pieces of Legends, like yeah. like we just talked about. Like, and recontextualizing. And recontextualizing. Which is important. Uh, I just want to point out something that's kind of just crazy, just part of my head, right? So, Heir to the Empire, 1991, right? Right. I'm just making sure. Yeah, that's, the, I think that's The correct. first book in the New Jedi Order, Vector yeah. Prime, 1999. So in eight years, we went from the beginning of the EU, essentially. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. To the New Jedi Order, a 23-book series. Jeez. So this new expanded universe, you know, in the new Disney canon era, is seven years old now. Right, right. Think about the scale of where we're headed. I mean, we're getting TV shows now at, on a scale. It, the door's opening never had for before. sure. But yeah. Like, you know, content started out as a trickle. But now it is picking up, and every time we talk about Disney and any time you know, negativity around Disney comes up, just remember, this is what we have now. We are getting more Star Wars than we've ever had before, sure. and we're going to continue that, and I think that is the most important thing. I don't want Star Wars to just be sitting on a shelf and maybe get a new trilogy every cool. 15 to 20 years. This is why this was an exciting thing seven years ago when this happened, and now we're finally seeing the payoffs from it. And as a lover of, of that legend stuff and how the EU is more grounded than the three movies, like, to me, I love when stuff comes back, but I only love it when it's correct. Like, when Avar Chris is like, folds their legs and starts levitating and they're going to help coordinate the battle, I'm like, I know what this is. This... This is a really appropriate time. And like you said, and this isn't even a battle, but it's the same power. Yeah. It's that same wonderful vision of a quote-unquote force morale right yeah like, um i i i love when this stuff comes back for the right reasons like not just because like oh i love that power when i was a kid i just want to put it back in canon like no i nah, not into that i'm into when appropriate like 
all right, guys, we have this great thing that's about to happen. And you know what? Just before I write something new, let me just check the closet and see if anything else fits here. Oh, actually, you know what? This would fit great. We don't have to invent a new thing if the old thing with just a few tweaks will serve us just as well. And I love when that's how things get back into this universe. Um, and I also, again, Tales of Jedi is my heart beats for it all the time. I hope someday the Old Republic will show up in the, the Disney view of things. And um, we've talked around it. There's pieces of it, little tiny pieces of yeah, it yeah. Um, in there. Um, but one of the things I really enjoy is like Battle of Meditation is a perfect example of why Tales of the Jedi lit up my mind because what a Jedi power. Just yeah. taking the people around you and making them the best versions of themselves. If that's not what the Jedi Order is supposed to be, yeah. and if that's not such a triumphant thing to see in the High Republic when we are seeing Jedi... Like the last time they are what they're supposed to be doing yeah. the work they're supposed to do before darkness starts closing and choking them down and the bureaucracy starts turning them into soldiers and all this other terrible stuff. Yeah. Like it is great at this wonderful moment of their height. We are seeing them do a disaster relief and using their powers to make that as effective and save as many lives as possible is just rad. I couldn't agree more. And that's what makes the opening of that book so impactful you if you haven't treated yourself to it dig in because yeah. yeah even hearing everything we've just said it is still absolutely worth going and reading absolutely all right i think that's i think that's it i think it's time to close this one down all right Hey, that's a show in the can. Done. Ooh, boy, that was a fun one. Uh, three topics that, you know, feel small on the outside looking in, but uh, I had we, a surprising amount to say, I feel like. I think we are fine and we can talk about anything yeah. for at least 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> kind of wild, isn't it? Here we are coming up towards the end of April, the beginning of May, and we have Bad Batch on the horizon. We have a Thrawn book just a few days mm -hmm. away. Uh, exciting time to be a Star Wars fan. Maybe even, who knows, you know, what are we, May, coming up on May? Could get maybe some info on Mando or Book of Boba Fett May 4th, do you think? Well, I still I still have uh, the fact that I think that we are going to see some, I think we're going to see some movement from Star Wars because I'm going to guess that hopefully we'll see some cool stuff on May 4th. It might be low-key, but like I definitely think at the end of the fall, when Book of Boba Fett's about to go off and we're about to get to the new year with the new Mando, I, I definitely think you're going to hear what's after that. Like, I think total, total out there-ness, uh, I think we can get, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe like this past December, this coming December at D23 or whatever, we might get a few 
trailers for some of that new television, maybe even some more like mood, like maybe a mood trailer for yeah. even like, even like Rogue Squadron might have a mood trailer. Yeah. Not, you're not going to see a frame that thing's not filming, but like much like we saw Rogue One, the Rogue Squadron, like, hey, I'm going to be making this movie. It's yeah. going to be awesome. Like, I wouldn't be surprised that they are going to tease us with more of that because I think Disney's very smart about there's always a breadcrumb one step beyond what you're currently consuming. Well, we know in 2022 we're getting Andor and we're getting Kenobi. Oh, Both sure. Both will be shot the- and done. So there is, an, I, I mean, an Andor trailer seems certain for the end of the year. You know, yes. for like celebration time frame. Yes. I would think, right? Mm-hmm. But if Andor probably isn't coming out till after the Book of Boba Fett and presumably Mando season three. That's like, yeah, yeah. Right. So Andor best case scenario comes what, April or May? Uh, if I had to guess, May 4th of next year, I think we'll yeah. be sitting down to the premiere of Andor. So is August too soon to see a trailer for something like that that doesn't come I out? I don't think so. Especially yeah. considering, to be honest, that thing's been filming for a while now. Yeah. Like, that's got to be, they've got to be closing down some what of the if, special effects. What for if they do a set. surprise launch on Andor and it comes out the end of this year? Uh, I'm gonna if if you're if you're in the uh, the groove of the Marvel Star Wars combo meal, right, where you went from Mandalorian right into WandaVision into Falcon Winter Soldier into Bad Batch into Loki, I'm just saying like by the time you get to August, the well dries up. So who knows? Yeah, let's see. The Hawkeye show isn't until what December, but we do have Marvel movies coming back. Uh, that's true. If you're in that rotation, that's, that's true. I, I, I just, I, I think, man, Disney's got to like show up like four more months worth of content, and then they've got me every single week out of the entire calendar year wanting to watch some new thing from them. So. I mean, to be fair, right? Think about where we're at right now. It's only increasing. Oh gosh, it's only increasing. We all, we already have more than we did the day before. So. I mean, I don't know. I'm having trouble keeping up with Star Wars books for the first time in a long time. And I think that's, to be honest, I think that's great because that's where the universe needed to go. It's been fun that we've been able to keep on top of all this stuff. But yeah. like, um, like I'm super behind on High Republic at this point because of like, there's so many comics and so many books and I've got so much. Yeah. I've only I'm got so waiting. much time. <laughs> I get it. I'm just reading, waiting to read all the comics till the trades start coming out. Um, It's, it's. It's a little tough to stay on top of, and it's totally fine. Like, we've talked about yep. it before, and I'll say it again. Like, the best thing about Star Wars is you don't have to eat all of it. Like, it's an all-you-eat buffet. You're not meant to actually just clear the buffet. You're just to take the parts of the buffet you want. That's absolutely right. Um, so. And that's the attitude we're going to keep having here on Star Wars All In <laughs> as we try to let go of our Rise of Skywalker feelings. And by we, I mean me. But mostly you. We have. We've moved on. I have critique, but it's, yeah, it's mostly, it's, yeah. yeah. You have passion for it yeah. in a and way. If that I, I ever see Chris Terrio on the street, I'll be polite and not <laughs> say anything because that's what I do. You're just, yeah, just be nice. Yeah. Hey, are you the guy who wrote, you know, Batman, Superman, and Rise of Skywalker? Why, why yes, I am. Work harder. Just walk past him. Huge Argo fan, man. Argo's really good, though. It's all right. Yeah, it's fine. I'm not uh, going to take a bite Ar- out of Argo. Argo's yeah, fine. Yeah, Argo's great. Okay. Argo's um, fine. All right. I think that's all we have to talk about. All right. My name is Matt. <laughs> I'm Ross. Until next Wednesday. Oh, may the force be with you. This 
This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2021.